All right. It's so good to see you guys this morning. I wonder how long your arm is. Reach your arm out and tell me if you can reach to the back and pat yourself on the back. Anybody, can anybody do that? Some of you are like, yeah, I do this all day, yeah. Um, pat yourself on the back. We survived another one of the hottest weeks on record in America's hottest city, apparently. That's actually not true. But you do know this, that the Google search, most popular Google search this week from Austin travel people was Phoenix to go cool down. And that's how you know it's hot in Austin. <laughs> when we want to go to Scottsdale, Arizona to get a break from the heat. Actually, we had a cold front yesterday. It only hit 95, which was amazing. So we broke out the denim. Got to break out the denim. Wouldn't want to catch a chill and become a Midwesterner again because that was nasty enough for the 20 years I had to live up there. Anyway, side story. That's for all y'all out-of-towners. It's good to see you guys today. Um, here we are. We're going to continue our series uh, entitled Somewhat Tongue-in-Cheek. Wait, what? Exclamation point, question mark. My mom says you can't do that, but she's an English professor. What does she know about grammar? So, wait, what? Bible stories for grown-ups. And some of you were kind enough to soundboard and send me some email this week, uh, just helping me understand how this is, how you're interacting with this as families and with your kids. Um, and so that was very helpful. It's always good to know. Mostly we send words out into silence and we have no idea, uh, sort of like singing in the shower, right? But anyway, I read this week that shower time is 2% washing, 8% uh, whatever else, and about 99% finishing conversations we wish we would have had. Does anybody else? <laughs> All right, I have to make a note here, Trey. There were three jokes at the 9.30 that Trey says take out, so I'll take those out, including the shower joke. But I was thinking this week after our Tuesday leftover conversation from radio that now that we've squared up to some of these hard Old, Old Testament conversations that we've been working on now for several weeks, we've done a lot of the really hard work about being modern Christians. Like, we, if you look back at the last several summers... We've looked at the isms, we've looked at colonialism, we've looked at power, the power agenda with evangelical faith. We've looked at a lot of these things. I'm not sure there's anything I'm scared of anymore. And I don't know why it took me extra long to come to these stories, of all stories. But I think once we square up to these, we're getting close to where I'm able to say, let's talk about the Crusades, I can tell you where we got that wrong. Let's talk about the 16th century, I can tell you how that was a total mistake. Let's talk about westward expansion in America. Let's talk about these things. Guys, what I'm trying to do is give you permission to be Christians who don't have to feel like you're terrified for subjects to come up at dinner parties. Our faith isn't antiquated unless we accept that premise. It's always growing, guys. It's only falling. There is no faith left, in case you didn't know this. It's only falling. And I can't promise you a soft landing. But I think we're moving in the right direction, at least to me, it feels exciting. By the way, you may not agree with me or us, me and Caesar, or us on this, and that's okay. Belief isn't the only organizing principle around which to build good community. I think it matters, but probably way less than we think it does. In fact, it's my personal opinion, and you know this, that Christians take belief probably way too seriously. If we organize around uh, perceived similarities of belief and things that we think we all agree on, then our lives eventually become echo chambers, don't they? which is dangerous because dissonance, I would argue, is healthy. Any jazz musician can tell you that. You know, when you think about belief, how many times have you changed your belief? Probably 15 times in the last 25 years. I guess you got to go to 25 different churches then. Because if belief is the organizing principle only, then we never stop upgrading. And so you never can really actually be home. You're always moving somewhere else. It's like the guy they found on a desert island. <laughs> this one made the cut. At night. I'm telling it again, Trey. This one will do. 30 years alone on a desert island, they finally get rescued, he gets picked up by the boat, and the guy says, as they're leaving the island, he says, what are the three buildings? And the guy says, well, that's where I lived. Well, what are those other two buildings? He says, well, that's the church I used to go to, and that's the one I go to now. 
if belief is the only thing that organizes us, guys, I'm, I'm telling you, you don't have to agree with everything we say here. I would welcome the tension and the dissonance. I would say if you agree with everything we're saying, then I'm worried because at some point when you disagree, then you're going to have to find a new church, and I'll hate to see you go. And I don't want to belabor the point, you know my soapbox, but you know that's the secret of social media, right? Only feeding you what resonates already with you. You figured this out. People will pay big money, as it turns out, to be told that they're actually right. One of the evolutionary realities of the neuropathology of our brain is that it takes a lot of energy expended to change how we think. In fact, it takes a little bit less to defend against changing our minds because changing our minds is really difficult work for the brain. And so we resist it. And all a business entity has to do, and you know this, is compile enough data points around what you already believe, and it's super easy. Look at what you shop for and what you consume. It's so easy to do. All a business has to do is gather that data and just pump you more evidence that you're already right. And the next thing you know, everyone else is insane. Everyone else is a fool, and so dies civility. That's our contemporary status of affairs. So we have to be careful, friends, when we exchange our exposure to different and challenging thinking for a complicated and beautiful piece of software that supposedly keeps you in touch with people you don't actually have time to stay connected to anyway. I know, right? All the social media employees in the room are like, I'm done with this church. We're going back to the stones, what we're going to do. Anyway. My point is this. I expose you to different thinking all the time, and I do it intentionally. I want you to be thinking people who are not afraid of conversations. You don't have to accept all of this. Dissonance, as I say, is healthy. I believe that. Anyway, that's just me stalling. Now we get to turn our attention to Genesis chapter 19, one of the hardest, most difficult stories in all of our Bible. I don't remember how the story of Sodom and Gomorrah ended up being included in this series, but I want to choke the people who included it because I tried this week to cut it out. I tried this week to skip past it and figure out something else to talk about, but I couldn't because some of you have been waiting a very long time to hear what I'm about to say this morning. And that's not me tooting my horn. I think these words matter. So I bring them to you humbly with a heavy heart. What I'm going to say is something that I think you've actually always known. It's true. You've always known it. In fact, you get credit for knowing a truth. It's not what someone brings to you. It's what you can accept and pull in. You get the credit for that. Some of you have been waiting so long to hear these words, and it will be my honor to share with you something today that I think we've gotten wrong and how we might get it right from the text. Today's story is the most abused, the most twisted, the most misunderstood of all Old Testament stories, in my opinion. In fact, it's so radioactive because of the damage that it has traditionally been used to inflict that wisdom might suggest, it might whisper to us, don't touch it at all, it's too triggering. It's like a cable with 40,000 volts. You better be wearing your insulated booties. But we must we have to have these conversations to set ourselves free. We must be courageous enough to name what needs to be named about our faith, history, about the human damage we've caused to one another by abusing our texts and weaponizing it. We cannot back down, friends. If something is unbelievable, we have to say it. If something is consistently misunderstood, we have to own it. We have to say it. If it drips with power agendas and sexist agendas and racist agendas and nationalist agendas and patriarchal agendas or anything else that we know runs counter to the gospel that sets all things free, friends, we must say it. We just have to say it for a thousand reasons, chief among them because our littles are listening, our kids are listening, and any failure to be honest with them about our mistakes will sear and singe and scorch their imagination. And eventually they will look at you and say, I don't believe what you say because it's not trustworthy. Ginny Hogan, uh, someone who writes on Twitter, said this this week. I went to an expensive Catholic school, which meant they taught the Bible literally. 
Up until the part where Matthew says a camel has a better chance of fitting through the eye of a needle than a rich person getting into heaven, at which point the teacher says, yeah, that's a metaphor. <laughs> They're listening. Kim Friel sent me that text. I give her credit for that. I think you get my point. Kids are reading everything, everything we say and also everything we don't say. They don't miss much. But you remember that because you were small once and you didn't either. So knowing that the stakes are high, let's name some hard stuff today, shall we? Starting with the obvious, let me just go on record and say it. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is an awful story for so many reasons on multiple levels. There must be a reason why the ancients included this in their meta-narrative of origin identity, but that reason escapes me if I'm honest. This story doesn't flatter anyone, not even God. So let me set the stage for us before we jump into chapter 19. In chapter 18, Abraham was waiting, and his wife were waiting to see the fulfillment of God to have a child. Now, they were nearly 100, and you can imagine that they were running out of hope, but they were waiting on that when three uh, visitors appeared from God. Visitors were a big deal back then in that culture, and how you treated a stranger or a foreigner or a guest had everything to do with whether or not you were considered a good person, at least to the ancient Hebrews. And these visitors catch Abraham off guard, so he hurries to prepare them a meal. And if you're a man in the room, you know that's not true. Actually, he gave direct orders to Sarah to hurry to prepare them a meal, this being the ancient world. Some of you men cooks, I know that's not your story, but these are ancient times. And as they're preparing the meal, the messengers ask about Sarah and prophesy that upon their return, however long that would be, that she would, be, she would already have a child. And she, from the next tent, overhears this and responds with history's first LOL in caps. She laughs out loud. I knew I'd get somebody with that. And then she lies about it. When asked, was that you laughing? She says, oh, no, no, that wasn't me laughing. That was super helpful. She overheard this. And something dropped into her heart anyway. Then Abraham walks his visitors on their way. And God begins to have an odd conversation with God's self or with the messengers. The Hebrew isn't super clear. But Yahweh decides somehow to share the plans with Abraham that they're going to punish the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities on the plain, for great wickedness that they were allegedly guilty of. And this is when Abraham engages God and begins to bargain for the safety or the salvation of that city. Well, the visitors decide to go down to the city. They were three, now they're two. I don't know how that happened. To check out to see what was going on down there while Abraham and Yahweh negotiate. And this is a huge deal. You can't miss this piece. No one bargained with the deities of the ancient Near East friend. They were vindictive and angry and they were somewhat fickle and capricious. They were difficult to appease and it was very unlikely that any mortal person even Abraham would be able to engage in a negotiation successfully with God. But that's the story. Then Yahweh and Abraham bargain, and they talk this down. They go from 50. What if there's 50 righteous people? What if there's 45? Well, would you do it for 35? Well, how about 10? And I think at this point, Abraham's doing the math, and he's trying to think of all his family members that he thinks might be righteous in the city of Sodom. Well, when the angelic beings get to the city, apparently it was a far way off. Lot, Abraham's nephew, acting much like his uncle, tries to show great hospitality. And when he sees these divine visitors come to the gate of a city, he compels them. He basically begs them to come home with him. Now remember, how one treated their guests was everything in the world. And so Lot is acting very much like Abraham now. And this is when things get really, really strange. Lot takes them in, even though they resist at first. You see, they were on a reconnaissance mission. They wanted to see if the city was as hostile and as evil as they were told that it was. They intended to sleep in the square, in the open square, which doesn't sound like a good idea even today. They wanted to see what these people were made of. But in the end, they relent, and they follow Lot to his house. But it was too late. The men of the city had seen this all go down at the gate. And so they, the text says all of them, assemble a mob and met up at the house of Lot. Angelic visitors weren't an everyday thing. And so pounding on the door, they demand Lot turn over these guests. Why? 
Well, that's an issue of great debate, if I'm honest. Lot goes out, steps outside the door, and he begs them to reconsider their demand, but they're unswayed, and that's where we'll pick up the story. So Genesis chapter 19, verse 8 through 11, it reads like this. Look, I have two daughters, this is Lot speaking, I have two daughters who have not known a man, meaning that they are virgins. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they replied, stand back, and they said, this fellow came to us as an alien, and he would play the judge, and you just need to know that Lot and Abraham were not natives of these cities on the plain, and so they were outsiders. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. Things were getting tense, verse 10. But the men inside, these angelic messengers, uh, it reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and then shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, meaning young and old, so that they were unable to find the door. Now we're going to stop our reading of the story there. I'm guessing you know how the rest of the story goes. Lot and his daughters get out of the city, as does Lot's wife. Interestingly, his sons-in-law didn't believe it was going to happen, and so they don't leave the city apparently. And then the city burns under hellfire and brimstone, allegedly the work of God. Which feels weird, but similar. Remember, not that many chapters before, we heard tell of a story where God wipes out humanity and only saves a small righteous remnant. Same kind of an idea. That would have been Noah's Ark. This time, fire is the weapon of choice, not water. Anyway, if I'm honest, it's an ugly story. So let's interact with it. You ready? Phil Donahue? The floor is yours. I want to know from you, the reading of that, what are your thoughts? What's shocking here? Not me. You're asking. Yep, not you. Come on, you know how we do this? Raise a hand. Let me know what you're thinking. Yep. This actually sounds really, really good on the broadcast on Facebook and on YouTube. So hold your thoughts till you get the mic. What comes up at the reading of this story? Yes. At the start, you think, man, it really sucks to be a woman. Whoa. To be Thank a bargaining you. chip. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Very much so. Yes. The xenophobia feels really familiar. Yeah. How so? How so? Hang on. Hang on. How so? Well, just that, you know, two, two or three people show up who are strangers, and the next thing you know, you've got an angry mob. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's not... It's good to know we outgrew that in humanity, right? Or not. Right? right. And that they were willing to turn on Lot and his family however long they'd been there immediately because, well, you're not from here. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What a beautiful text. Someone else. What's ugly here? Raise your hand. Come on. Someone else. Julie and Wade, this is how we do church now in the summer. Julie and Wade are like, what's going on? The mic is moving around the room. Over here. Are you waving? You want the mic? You're being friendly? Yeah, there will be no being friendly right now in church. This is serious business. We're in Sodom and Gomorrah right now, friends. Anyone else? Okay, let me, let, me, let me broaden the question. What's ugly about this? What's beautiful about this story? Can anybody find anything beautiful about this story? We won't jump on you if you do. That's okay. Over here, over here, to your left. Going back to the part with Abraham, the fact that you can actually uh, bargain with God. Right. And you can actually bring this stuff. It's like, this is, this is cool. I mean, if everything, everyone else is vindictive and petty and capricious and all that kind of stuff, you can come to God and he's not going to, yeah. he's going to need a lot more to bring the fire and brimstone. Interesting that you can negotiate with God. Listen, this, you didn't do this with ancient deities. You just didn't. But you and I do, don't we? We do it in the bathroom mirror all the time, don't we? We negotiate all sorts of things with God. We're just never told that that's okay. But apparently Abraham can, right? Yeah, what else? What else is beautiful here? What's difficult? Why would this have been included in the meta narrative of their origin and meaning? 
of the people of Israel? Why would this matter? Why do you think this would matter? There's no wrong answer here. Maybe you guys love this story. Like, maybe I'm the only guy in the room who's like, what? Yeah. There's an element of foreigners, <clears throat> so people who are not a part of the original root, uh, who are essentially bargaining for the life of the root um, and going to defense of people who are going to lose their life. Um, also, the reminder of women as possessions are, is always fun. Right, yeah. Final thought, anyone? You can if you wait for the mic. Don't be. How are we supposed to feel knowing that the reason that these men were such gracious hosts, however, is all about it being a reflection of themselves and not necessarily some sort of inherent goodwill towards the other? Right. So to, 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 uh, if I'm tracking with you, stay, stay with me here for a second. Uh, is this self-preservation because to upset an angelic visitor might be your own hide? Is that what you mean? Yes, yes. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, uh, yeah, how could that not be the case, right? All right, hang with me here. Hang with me here. Let's see if we can, see if we can make some meaning of this. Genesis sometimes, if I'm honest to me, seems like a long string of really bad dad stories. And this is probably the worst of them all. Seriously, who offers to send out their virgin daughters to be dealt with as a crazy mob sees fit instead of two total strangers? I can predict, listen, put this on the list of things, God, don't you dare ever tempt me this way because I can tell you how I'm going to act and it will not be my daughters going out that front door, period. I don't know what was acceptable for fatherhood in the ancient world or what they thought was important to write down, but guys, that on the face of it is easy to say, that's crazy, right? That's nonsense. Listen, if you're a woman in this room, which many of you are, and this makes you feel devalued and unseen, you have every reason to feel that way. This is disgusting behavior of a father. It's just gross, y'all. We've been taught to admire the faith and hospitality of Lot without reckoning with this gross neglect as a father. I'm sorry, ladies, but you guys know not to expect too much of this super ancient material. You were not in view yet. That would come many tree rings later. We're reading way back towards the beginning. So can I just name that for us? I don't, I'm not surprised that some of us don't go back and read for inspiration in these stories. There isn't any here for you. It's just an ugly time. What a bizarre and painful story. I would have just cut it out if I was in charge of compiling. What are the greatest stories of, our, you know, of how we come to be? This is weird and ancient and full of cruel detail, and no one looks good in this. I just would have left it out. And in fact, I would never step up here on a Sunday and teach on this at all and hear me, were it not for the fact that this story has been used nonstop throughout human history to perpetuate awful treatment to a group of people that I love and admire. And I'm not just talking about women. I'm talking about gay people. Hear me. We have no idea what actually happened to Sodom, but we can be sure that the writers at the time that this was compiled still admired a God who hated unrighteous people and was more than willing to annihilate them by whatever means necessary. That was the God that was in vogue at the time. But don't forget, these are epic stories told and retold orally by generations of tribal-minded people who wrote down these details of events many generations after anyone would have seen anything like this. They never saw the stuff they wrote about in this case. Now, it is possible that God actually obliterated two cities on the plain with sulfur and brimstone, I suppose. It is possible that this was a mythical retelling of a natural event like a massive earthquake and the possible volcanic activity that would have resulted. It's possible. The site that most archaeologists agree upon that would have been the site of the city of Sodom sat, sat literally on a volcanic fault or on a tectonic plate fault. It's called the Jordan Rift Fault. 
What I can tell you is that God was still largely perceived at the time as a weather rascal, one who made it rain and made it not rain, made it dry, made it cold. So any misfortune, hear me, suffered by a neighbor that you hated and disliked, any calamity whatsoever, especially weather-related and cataclysmic in nature, would obviously be summarized and theologized as something that they deserved. Of course it would be. That's how it would have been interpreted. And over time, it would snowball into greater and greater hyperbole. Now remember, we did our little bit of uh, Joseph Campbell in the beginning. Facts of the story and how they function in the imagination of faithful people, they're not always the same thing. And much of what we're doing is peeling between those two things this summer. But none of that, if I'm honest, is that all that interesting to me. I'm most interested in how a single Hebrew word was translated and understood and then used to authorize hatred and bigotry and homophobia. I think you know where we need to go right now. The question comes down to one word. How do we understand the Hebrew word yada in verse 5? Now, the version of Scripture that I read that's the most informed with the most uh, current understanding would be the NRSV, and it reads this way. Where are the men, and this is the mob asking lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we might know them. But if you've been around the Bible for a while, you know that that's not how it was until recently. Here's how it would read in the NIV. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we might have sex with them. That's the translation. And this is where it gets strange. Now, I don't love Hebrew. You know this. I barely passed it. I, I only like to tinker with it when absolutely necessary, but today it is absolutely necessary. Here's the question. Why would one English translation render this word sex and another to know? Why would that be? Now, if you've ever been clobbered, you don't need me to tell you how important it is that we get this right. This work matters. People suffer when we inject current viewpoints and prejudices and understandings of sexuality and orientation into ancient sacred material, most especially when the subject is sex. People suffer when we get this wrong. For my entire life, here's my confession, I have heard this passage taught as a categorical condemnation of homosexuality, general term. Which is interesting since that word appears zero places in this text. In fact, I'll give you this for free. That word appears zero places in the Old or the New Testament at all until 1946 in English. That's when the church felt in the West that it needed to repudiate what they thought was a decline of biblical morals of the family in the West. And so they inserted that word literally in 1946. There's a documentary film coming out about this by our friends uh, uh, Ed Oxford and Kathy Baldock. And it's going to be entitled 1946, The Mistranslation That Shifted a Culture. Let me just do a little bit of work around this. Paul's condemnation, his prohibitions in the New Testament would refer to two different groups, and you know these Greek terms probably, arsenikoitai and malakoi. And both of these words are rare and unclear, and neither of them can or should be translated as a general concept of homosexuality. That's foreign to the text. They refer to abusers of young men, which is how every other language translates these words up until 1946 in English, but I digress. Read some Ed Oxford and some Kathy Balduck if you need to. Here's my point. The men of Sodom showed up as a mob at the house of Lot to get to know more about these visitors. That much we know to be clear. What exactly that meant, we can't be so sure. But even if gang rape or sexual abuse was on their minds that night, hear me, these men of the city were not punished for desiring to live in loving, committed, monogamous relationships with men that they loved romantically. It's not the same thing. This is not an early condemnation of what I'm willing to march for, what you're hopefully willing to join me in marching for. That's not what this is. This is violence in the ancient world. This is power over. If this was sexual, which it may have been, it was about sexual subjugation, a grotesque display of sexual dominance. Friends, these are not gay men. 
The text says that it was all the men of the city, young and old, which is clearly hyperbole. But if it was a city comprised entirely of gay men, where did the children come from, guys? The text says young and old went to the house of Lot that night. Now, I know what the church taught you. I know what the church taught me. But that's not what actually the text actually implies, if we're, if we're honest. If you're going to make the case that that is exactly what the text prohibits and says, you're going to have to do that with a single word, and you're going to have to use a secondary, if not tertiary, definition of that word. Now, I'm not arguing that the Hebrew word yada can't or should never be translated as sexual knowledge. It can, but you need to know this. It shows up 900 times in our text, of which 1% of the time does it refer to anything overtly sexual. Y'all, we've bought a bag of business on this, and we haven't even questioned But wait, preacher, you're saying the church has always taught me. I know. I know what the church has taught you. We don't know what the men of Sodom intended to do that night or if this even happened. But what we do know is that it was about violence, not homoerotic desire. You want to know the truth, friend? Can I speak some truth on a hot July morning? This is the prime example in the Old Testament of Scripture used illicitly to sanction homophobia, hatred, disdain, contempt, and violence towards children of God, towards our brothers and our sisters who bring as much glory to God through the embodiment of their own creation as do any of the rest of us. I don't know if anyone representing any kind of spiritual authority in your life has ever apologized to you for this evil, this nefarious treatment of a sacred text, but I will hear me. I am so very sorry. I am so sorry you were taught an ancient city deserved to be burned to the ground because of their alleged homoerotic display of love and desire. That's not at all what this was. That bit of misinterpretation was very intentional, friend, and it was never right, and it caused great damage. Now, let's you and I assume for the sake of argument that divine wrath did fall on the city on the plain that day. Did you know how the major prophet Ezekiel interprets the sin of Sodom? Do you know what it was? You want to know what he thought was so deserving of such a calamitous ending? Let's read it together. It comes to us from Ezekiel chapter 16. And it's the only place in scripture where anyone attempts to name what was the guilt of Sodom. And here it is. As I live, says the Lord God, and this is Ezekiel's prophecy, your sister, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done, speaking about Israel. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom, colon, now watch what comes next. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did abominable things, which is a simple Hebrew translation of the word taboo, which meant anything culturally unacceptable. They did abominable things before me, therefore I removed them when I saw it. Now, you might be thinking, you might be saying to yourself, hang on, preacher, Sodom and Gomorrah is referenced many times or several times in Scripture in the biblical text. It's true. But always is an example of the demise of a city. To my knowledge, only Ezekiel attempts to even name for us what they were guilty of. Maybe Ezekiel isn't your guy. Maybe he's too obscure. Perhaps neither is Jeremiah or Amos or Zephaniah, all of whom characterize the sin of Sodom as oppression of the outsider. Maybe you just want to know, what does Jesus say about this? Did he refer to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, he did. In chapters 10 of Matthew and Luke, Jesus says any city that rejects or mistreats his disciples when they try to take them the good news will suffer a greater demise than that of Sodom if they reject the gospel. No reference whatsoever to homosexuality. Now, to be clear, our American evangelical churches were not the first to get this wrong. This misinterpretation goes all the way back to Augustine in the 4th century, our favorite friend in the Middle Times. But in America, let's be honest, we've made an art form out of misunderstanding this story. And we've allowed it to fuel fear and hatred and contempt for which we must repent. 
this final thought. This is a heavy subject. I know you can barely breathe. The sin of Sodom was pride and inhospitality, friend. They weren't charbroiled by God for homoerotic love. They acted violently as a mob against outsiders. That was their perversion. I wonder, was your church growing up honest with you about that? Did your church pay close attention to the stranger and the foreigner in their midst? Did your church name pride and gluttony and inhospitality for what they are, sin? Or did they mostly just talk about sex? I sometimes wonder, friend, why you're here at all. Why you can even stand in a church after all these years of mistreatment and disdain. The very text around which we gather as Christians has been used to denigrate your beauty, your humanity, your beautiful and timeless divinity. I'm speaking directly to you, my friend from the gay, the LGBT community right now. I often end my sermons this way, but I mean it today differently. Why are you still here? How can you even trust being in something like this? When the text has been used to crush you in traditional churches, how how are you still listening? What keeps you listening when I, a cisgendered white man of European descent, open this old book and try to find something true, something life-giving to say? Now look around you, straight folks. There's a few of you in the room too. A very significant part of our congregation now comes from the gay community. A community consistently clobbered and condemned by old stories stretched so far, so thin now that we can all just see right through them if we're honest. Our old stories were turned into ammunition and used against them on our watch, hiding behind one word, friend, one word. And yet, they're here. And in many ways, they're leading us now. Their passion and enthusiasm are the wind in the sails of this little church on South Lamar because we cling to the gospel and treat our texts, especially these super ancient stories, with great care, never assuming that the gospel and the text are always identical to what we were taught. No, no, we do great care with our text. Regardless, even if something in the old world said something that we don't agree with now, we would never allow it to give us categoric permission to hate anyone we know better. I have such admiration for the members of the LGBT community that we call part of our own family, how you can somehow still listen to a sacred text that has been weaponized against you to destroy your dignity, I would just simply say it this way. Your resilience is our future, friend. I wonder if you've thought of that. And if you're still here, hear my heart, still listening, still holding your head high, still bringing your gifts and voice of leadership to bear on the body of Christ, thank you. You enrich us in ways that make us all proud. And I would say this, because you are here, our future is bright.